Welcome to the TW Sports Group podcast. I'm Tim Waring. Today we'll be speaking to Alan Snoddy. Alan is a retired Northern Irish referee, known for having refereed at the World Cup Finals in Mexico in 1986 and in Italy in 1990. At the 1986 World Cup, Snoddy was appointed to referee the game between Morocco and Portugal, which ended 3-1 to Morocco. In the 1990 World Cup, Alan refereed the game between Colombia and West Germany, which ended 1-1 at the San Siro in Milan. He was the first referee from Northern Ireland to referee back-to-back World Cup finals. Snoddy served as referee's development officer at the Irish Football Association, a position which he left in 2014, although he still works as a referee observer for both the Irish Football Association and UEFA. He is also a member of the UEFA Referee Convention Panel and is widely used assisting countries developing their refereeing structures. He is a senior course leader at the UEFA Referee Centre of Excellence, coaching young, promising referees. He is also a FIFA referee, technical instructor, conducting technical seminars regularly. He worked for two and a half years as the president of the Cyprus FA Referee Committee and in February 2020 finished a spell of 16 months as a referee consultant to Latvia FF. He has vast experience in refereeing, observing, assessing, instructing, mentoring and coaching all levels of match officials and is very much in demand for seminars and development projects. Snotty was appointed member of the Order of the British Empire, MBE, in the 2020 birthday honours for services to Association Football. Sit back and enjoy the final episode of Season 1 with Alan Snotty. Uh, good morning, Tim. Yes, I'm fine, thanks. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for coming on. It's the season finale, Season 1 finale, Episode 20, and we have a great guest than yourself and i'm so happy to have you on because refereeing is the really it's a big topic of discussion now with a lot of shortages of referees especially in the junior game is there yeah. any thoughts where you think that may well be yeah it, it's very unfortunate um tim obviously the shortage of referees at junior level because of course after the COVID pandemic we probably have hundreds and hundreds maybe even thousands of of young players who have been desperate for a game of football, um, probably for the last year and a half, as as have referees, of course. But of course, this pandemic has has caused so many problems around the world that the shortage of referees, I guess, is just a drop in the ocean. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I'm sure there there are many many reasons for it, and uh, you know, when people are inactive for a year, year and a half, they they get into new habits. Um, people get older, obviously. People retire from refereeing and playing. Um, but it is a real shame and hopefully there can be a, a really uh, huge recruitment campaign generated to try and um, reduce this shortfall that we have at, at the moment. Alan, looking at your journey, you got into refereeing in 1972 and from progressing at junior level and intermediate, you were refereeing in the Irish League by the age of 23. You were a FIFA referee from 1980 to 2000 and officiated in two World Cup finals in 1986 in Mexico and in Italy in 1990. So we're going to bring it right back. What got you into refereeing? It's a question I'm often asked, uh, Tim, obviously, and I think the main reason was that, uh, well, well, obviously the main reason was I was very, very keen on football and interested in football. And I knew uh, even when I was a young guy at school uh, and playing boys brigade football that I was never really going to be a top, uh, a top player. Even even at domestic level, I, I could play obviously, but not uh, not at top level. So I remember watching one or two games and thinking, perhaps naively to myself, that I could do better than the guy in the middle, which maybe sounds a little bit cheeky, a little bit uh, strange. But for some reason, the seed was sown, and uh, I went to to a, a referee's recruitment course and came through the course and started to referee football matches and. Uh, enjoyed it, genuinely enjoyed it, and got a good reaction from from players at the end of the game, which was which was encouraging as well. And really, just step by step, match by match, um, things progressed uh, very very steadily. What age were you when you started refereeing? I was sixteen years old then. 
You spent five years at junior level. How did you find that? Was that you finding your feet? I, I called that five years, really, the apprenticeship um, on a very, very solid foundation uh, <clears throat> that I think stood me in good stead for really for the rest of my career because, you know, in, in those days, uh, you know, junior football was very, very competitive. Um, of course, we were coming through the troubles in Northern Ireland and thankfully football survived all of that. And I think it was probably a release for a lot of people to get their, their games on a Saturday afternoon. Um, so when I was coming through leagues like the Churches League, the Old Boys League, uh, you know, these were competitive games um, and a really, really sound education, uh, which which I think benefited me in, in the years ahead. That next step took you into intermediate level. Yeah, so promotion came to intermediate level um, and I really spent a very short time at that level. I think it was just a year and a half. Uh, but looking back in hindsight, it, it was those five years that, that added to the year and a half. Uh, it gave me an awful lot of experience before, before unexpectedly, to be honest at the time, uh, getting promoted into Irish League, Irish League refereeing, Irish League football. How did that come about? I presume there were assessors watching your performances. Yeah, there were assessors, of course, watching performances. And again, looking back um, over the games that I did, uh, the assessors obviously turned up for games that were meaningful, games that were competitive and had come through those well. So some, a few people, I think, saw that I had some potential back then. And, and to be very fair to them, they, they gave me my chance. They pushed me on. Um, and I, I grasped the opportunities with both hands and the promotion then came very, very quickly. What was the hardest thing for you during that journey from junior football to Irish League? What did you find as your biggest obstacle? I don't really recall, Tim, any huge obstacles that were in my way. I think if I think back, I probably... Uh, realised that I was making progress and enjoyed the games and strangely... As you move up through the ranks, a lot of things in refereeing become a little bit easier because obviously the standard of play is a little bit better. Uh, the grounds that you're on are much better. The crowds start to increase as you move up the ranks. And I really do remember just just enjoying myself. Um, I, I guess there might have been one a situation where, where there was, um, a, 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 let's say, an aggressive player who pushed, who pushed himself too far and you know, refereeing, uh, people in refereeing now can, can be put off by a lot of things. But I remember saying to myself, this guy's, this guy's not going to stop me uh, in my career moving, moving on. And, uh, and thankfully he didn't. Yeah. I've got to ask you, you started a referee in the Irish League at the tender age of 23. That's right, yes. Uh -huh. Did you start as an assistant referee or a linesman, as it would have been called back in the day? Yeah, well, it, what actually happened back in those days was that we, we acted as referee and linesmen or assistant referees, as it's known now. So when you were promoted to Irish League level, you, you fulfilled both of those roles. Um, so you probably would have would have refereed two, two days out of uh, two match days out of three and maybe been a linesman for the other one. So again, that was good experience um, because I always believed that uh, if you had experience as an assistant referee, it made you a better referee. But th those days are gone now because uh, match officials choose at a certain point in their career which route to go down as a referee or an assistant referee because it's become a much more specialised role than it was in my time. How were you accepted by the players? Because you were one of the youngest referees at the time at that level. Oh, yeah. At that time, I was the youngest ever. Um so I was so uh, <laughs> I was accepted by the players. That that was that was uh, that was nice. There was never any um, attempt by players to try and uh, use my age as a reason. Um, and and I guess again that was that was helpful. Of course, these days there are any amount of young referees or referees of that age. So it's become very very common because uh, if you want to progress in the game now, uh, you need to start. You need to start at a young age, and thankfully, we've got uh, many, many young match officials operating at the highest levels now, which is great. Do you remember your first game in the Irish League? Uh, it was it was Ballymena Portadown at Shamrock Park. So, 
Um, that was the first senior match that I did. So <laughs> my memory from that was the slope on the pitch, and <laughs> I, th- I thought I was fit. I thought I was fit until I, until the last ten or fifteen minutes of that game, and I suddenly realised that the pace of Irish league football is much much faster than what I was ever accustomed to. So that was just a little wake up call at that time, just to increase the fitness levels and and um, and, and just put in more work, which of course was. Uh, was was something that needed done. Um, was there anything that stuck in your mind in terms of players or managers you had the referee? Um, there's probably there's there's probably several moments. It's very it's very difficult just to remember remember everything. Um, you know, as you know, one of the interesting things I'm doing at the minute is trying to put a book together on my memories of of refereeing, and the most difficult part. To be honest, is the uh, is the domestic memories because there were so many games, mm-hmm. um, so many um, things that happened, and I've no doubt that a lot of those uh, I will have forgotten. What What's really nice is when I bump into ex players or managers, and we reminisce a little bit, and they're able to remind me of situations that that they remember yeah. Um, yeah. that we were both involved in. But again, COVID has has prevented a lot of that sort of face-to-face meetings over a cup of coffee somewhere just to have a half-hour chat. Um, but yeah, there are a lot of a lot of positive memories, of course, and uh, of course, perhaps a few decisions that if I had to make again, I would do slightly differently, but that's refereeing. How did you find the fans and crowds in the early days of stepping up into the Irish League? Well, it, certainly when you move up to the top level, then you've got much larger crowds than you would have had at the uh, the old B division days or the championship days, as they would be called today. Um, but I find crowds to be a motivation. I, I think if you speak to most players and most referees and uh, people involved in the game, they'd rather be playing a game of football in front of thousands of people rather than a handful. So I, I find that quite motivational and quite uh, uh, enjoyable. Was there any stadium that you thought, whoa, that's a great atmosphere? Or a certain game that you enjoyed, especially. Um, well, obviously, um, getting big crowds here, the the bigger stadiums. I mean, of course, uh, Windsor Park, obviously, or the National Stadium, as it's known now, would have would have probably hosted the biggest the biggest crowds. The Oval, um, Cliftonville, when they were in their heyday and winning leagues, there was always a tremendous atmosphere. Um, obviously, a much smaller ground and 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 a huge crowd and. You know, it, 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 the noise was great. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, a big crowd was something that, that everybody looked forward to. <laughs> I always wanted to ask a referee, what do you think when the crowd starts chanting that your occupation is different and chant, the referee's a banker, or something along those lines? You know, um, it, it, it may sound a bit, a bit strange, Tim, but really and quite honestly, when when you're in the middle, it's just a noise. Um, yes, yeah. occasionally you might uh, you, you might think to yourself they're you know they're they're singing something unpleasant or something um, about you, but you know from my point of view, it probably just made me more determined to to make sure that the next decision was the correct one, which as a referee really is the most important thing. Uh, focus on the next decision and blank out anything else that's going on that's going on around you. You know, strangely, um, probably it's more difficult at parks level, at junior level, when there's a handful of people and you know exactly who the person is that's shouting whatever it is uh, towards the referee because you can see him easily, you can identify him easily and there's so few people, it's clear who's doing it. So, I would always say to referees coming through that if you can handle those types of moments uh, when you're in front of bigger crowds and it really just becomes a noise, you can't identify the individual involved, um, then you'll be fine. It's just surviving at, at, at the in the early years at, at junior level. Yeah. When was your first cup final? Uh, first cup final was, was 1986 before I left for Mexico. Um, so that was that was the first of of the four Irish Cup finals that I that I refereed. That must have been huge. I mean, officiating at your first Cup final domestically, then being called up 
to officiate at the 1986 World Cup Finals in Mexico. I mean, how was that feeling as an individual? Well, the Irish Cup final is a, is a is a tremendous day, and it, it's one to be enjoyed and one to be cherished. And all you can really hope for at the end of a game like that is that when the final whistle goes, nobody's looking towards the referee or nobody's accusing the match officials of making a a match changing decision that's that's possibly incorrect. Um, so you really want to get through those games under the radar and 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 just get through it without being noticed. Mm-hmm. Um, so thankfully, on that occasion, that's that's what happened. Um, and of course, then you're, you know, you're you're known as the guy that's going to the World Cup finals to represent Northern Ireland. So it, it's really really important that you come through um, with a clean sheet, as it were, and and uh, you know you're not gaining publicity for the wrong reasons, which could affect your confidence, could affect lots of things. So yeah, it was nice. Tell us about the process of being selected the referee at the 86 World Cup Finals in Mexico. I guess again, Tim, the process is really is really quite quite similar. You've got referee observers at every international game that you handle, and you know you've got people looking for referees with potential. Which, at my young age, then I think what was recognised was that um, you know if we bring this young guy with us, he can learn and 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 you know continue his career at international level uh, for many years ahead. So again, there were people that had given me that opportunity and given me that chance. And you know, I, I think everybody would understand that certainly back then that that appointment just came totally out of the blue, and it was not something <clears throat> that he had said I had been anticipating that I'd be on a on a plane to Mexico in in the summer. <laughs> it's also amazing that Northern Ireland they competed in the nineteen eighty six World Cup finals in Mexico too. Did you travel together with Billy Bingham and the Northern Ireland team? <laughs> no, 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 no. Refereeing and, and and players are kept are kept well apart. I did have the I did have the wonderful chance of seeing us play um, against Brazil and Guadalajara uh, wow. when we lost the game three 0 because I I refereed Portugal Morocco and Guadalajara the day before. And it was the last. Uh, it was the last match day in the group, so we had a few rest days after that game. So I managed to stay on uh, with FIFA's blessing in Guad- Guadalajara for another day, just to watch us uh, play Brazil. Because let's be honest, Northern Ireland Brazil doesn't come around too often. Yeah. Uh, and and what an experience and what an opportunity and just to be able to relax after my own game. Um, and okay, watch us lose three nil, but. Uh, you know what a what a tremendous tremendous experience. You would have been thirty years of age at that World Cup. Yeah, 31. 31, Yeah, it's amazing. And how many games did you officiate? Uh, well, I I refereed Portugal, Morocco, and then I was assistant referee in four other four other games uh, in that tournament. So again, back then, Tim, we were dual with dual roles. We were referees. We were linesmen, as as of course it was called then. So. All, all of the referees in the tournament acted as a linesman at some point. But um so I was fortunate enough to get five appointments, uh five appointments in the whole tournament. That is fantastic. It must have been a strange feeling coming back from officiating at a World Cup to come back to the Irish League to referee. Um what I think what was the strangest thing was just obviously flying home and then trying to get straight back into a normal Routine with family, normal routine with work, straight back into work again, um, and and just a real a real change. And your mind, uh, your mind probably still in Mexico where you'd spent the, the last six weeks. Uh, and to be honest, pretty tired, pretty tired after it because it, it um, you know, mentally and uh, probably more mentally tired than physically tired because the, the fitness levels would have been would have been high um, and a brand new experience uh, as well. So I think what I tried to do was just use that in a very, very positive way in in, uh, in Irish League football in the following seasons because, you know, all of a sudden you had World Cup referee in brackets beside your name and you had to live up to that standard um, and be seen to be given every game 100%. Um, and not letting your own standards slip because, as I say, you had this sort of tag with you then for the rest of your life, which you had to live up to. Yeah. In terms of communication levels, 
Obviously, with all the different languages being spoken by the contesting nations, how did you find that? No, that was fine. I mean, uh, most most players, most players now would speak would speak decent English. Body language all, always plays a part. Um, when you're making decisions, if there is a language barrier, then better not to try and get into a discussion in any case, in case there's any misunderstandings. But no, the language barrier was never really was never really a problem because, you know, you give your decision, it's done. Um, it's not something you would discuss, even uh, at local level, to try and get into debate about the why's and wherefores of of decisions wouldn't be the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Your next World Cup then was Italia 90. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Talk us through some of the games you officiated at, at the tournament. Well, Italia 90 was, um, uh, you know, a, a different experience because having been to Mexico, obviously you're you're thinking coming up to when the announcements for the, the, the final referees are being made, do I have a chance? I'm still in the running. Um, and <laughs> it's quite an interesting Story. I was driving home from from work one day, and uh, the BBC Sports News was on about twenty past five. And just the final uh, comment that the the um, the announcer made was that that Alan Snoddy's going to the World Cup finals in Italy, and you know that was it. Um, and I'm thinking, did I really hear that properly? And I was, I think, five minutes from the house, and of course, by the time I got home, uh, the phone already started, and my wife had been told by somebody who had rang. Um, with congratulations, so it was uh, it was a strange uh, it was a strange um, strange way to be told. But anyway, so you find out about being selected as a referee for the nineteen ninety World Cup finals in Italy by listening to the local BBC news bulletin on the radio in your car. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. That's exactly how it happened. <laughs> what was your first game you officiated at? In the 1990 World Cup, uh, the first game, I think I was an assistant referee um, in a match, um, and then of course I had the the famous or infamous situation with the the Germany Colombia game and Valderrama's play acting, and you know if you had your 15 minutes of fame, I guess that was mine. So that was the the big story that that um, that was sort of circling around me at that stage. Uh, so um, yeah, I mean that was a that was a moment that, um, you, you know, it, it it's difficult to explain. But you know, when you're when you're in the middle and you see something happen and you make a decision, and then the player decides to stay on the ground as if he's as if he's badly injured, and you play on for a long, long time, um, you know, it's uh, it, it's something that you can't prepare for, and it's it's something that I made my decision at the time and stuck by it, and. I think to this day, uh, nobody can say it was the wrong thing to do. Tell the listeners about that story. Valderrama was a player with with a huge hair, like a mane of a lion. And if memory serves me right, he played he played in France. It, it wasn't Marseille. What was the other French club? I'm not sure, Tim, where he might have played in France. It could have been. Uh, it wasn't. I don't think it was PSG or any of the. I remember Manchester United played them in Europe. Ah, it's going to annoy me now. It'll come back to me. While I'm thinking about that, tell the listeners what happened. Well, we were very close to half time, and uh, there was a normal challenge for the ball in midfield uh, between uh, Valderrama and one of the German players, and he suddenly fell to the ground, maybe uh, exaggerating some small contact or some small piece of shirt pulling that there was on him, but you know, referees make their decisions um, very, very quickly. Uh, they don't react to crowd noise because the decision has already been made in your in your mind, in your head. Um, so my clear decision at that stage was that he hasn't been fouled and there's a bit of play acting going on and he's, he's looking for a free kick. So I just did as any referee would do, play on. But what he decided to do was he was going to stay on the ground um, and just lay there and pretend that he got some sort of uh, some sort of injury. So it really became a battle of wills, uh, and I was determined that I wasn't losing this battle because if I'd lost this battle, then I was going to have awful trouble for the rest of the game. Just having, you know, keeping keeping authority, keeping the thing under control. So 
he lay there and lay there and lay there, and then eventually there was a stoppage in play, and I asked the uh, the stretcher to come on to carry him off, uh, which they did eventually. Took him um, uh, to the corner of the field in Milan and the San Siro. At that time, the, the the tunnel for the players was down in one corner, so he was stretchered off, uh, and of course the match probably was delayed for well over two minutes while all this happened. Uh, and we were just on the stroke of half time. So um, just before the half time whistle was being blown, then he'd come out and come back onto the field of play uh, to, to join the rest of the game. And then the half time whistle went. So probably the half time whistle came at a good time and then things could settle down a little bit. Um, but we were told as we came into the tunnel that as soon as the tre- stretcher had vanished out of sight of the uh, of the stadium, that he jumped off and then came back up the touchline to come on again. So I guess this was probably, when we look back, one of the first high-profile situations of a player simulating a player trying to pretend he was injured. So no criticism of the player. It's just it's just the facts of what happened. Yeah. Hey, it was Montpellier. Montpellier, okay, just- good. Just came back into my head. There must have been some big names then as Germany, or West Germany back then. Would have had Matthias, Rudy Voller, Klinsmann. Klinsmann, Voller, Matthias, yeah, all the all the the, uh, the top obviously the top German players of that of that era. Um yeah. Was there any stage that you had to pinch yourself and say, This is amazing. I'm in complete control of this game with all these stars? Um there, there are, yes, there are, and uh, I guess my pinch pinch moment came um, in my first game in the 1986 World Cup in Mexico, where I was linesman for Italy and Argentina in the first game that they had played in the tournament, and it was obviously my first game in the tournament as well, and at that time, the youngest ever referee at a World Cup final tournament, so there was a whole lot, a whole lot potentially going on, and we were standing in the tunnel um, waiting to lead the two teams out onto the field, and I just, to this day, uh, vividly remember turning around and seeing all these faces that I'd just seen on television screens, world-class players, uh, and thinking, um, you know, what am I doing here? What's going on? This is this is actually happening. Uh, and for a few seconds, you know, really um, disbelief, I suppose is is one of the words you could use, but then very, very quickly focusing and remembering that it was there to do a job and there to do my best and get things right. And, uh, you know, this was a game of football, 11 against 11, and there were important decisions to be made and just embracing the whole occasion and uh, and going out and doing what it was there to do. Was there any players that surprised you in terms of the way they behaved on and off the pitch? Um, I guess through my career, I've had um, a few experiences of, of uh, and I'm not going to mention names, obviously, but and I guess this is common as well that you know you would have you would have an image of a player that you've seen on television that's come across as really nice, really um, considerate, you know, behaving in a correct manner, and then once they come onto a football pitch, then you see a different a different side to them. But they're few and far between, and I guess that's just that's just life. Um, and it's up to you then to manage uh, the situation as you see it on the field, and you know apply the laws of the game, which is why you're there. Try to manage through situations using personality with perhaps the more difficult players, trying to get them on your side. It doesn't always work, but uh, it'll work more often than not. So, again, that's a skill that the top referees need to have. Outside of the game that you talked about, is there any special moment at a tie in ninety that sticks in your mind? Um, probably the the first special moment was was getting the appointment in the first place, I suppose, because nobody from Northern Ireland had ever been to two World Cup finals. We had Jack Adair in nineteen sixty six, a long time back. Um, and Malcolm Moffat in Spain in '82, so I was the first one to 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 go back again, and and probably this was as a result of being given my chance at 31 and having taken that chance, and people had confidence in me then being appointed again. Um, 
So um, I think there's more, you, you know, having had the chance to watch games as well when you weren't involved as a referee uh, was also a great learning experience. So the whole the whole tournament or the whole experience was was probably what I would remember most rather than individual individual moments. That is truly remarkable. I mean, back home, you refereed in the Irish League through to 2003. One of my mentors who works alongside me now in my project at TW Braga was the first team manager at Lisburn Story, Paul Kirk. Any funny stories that stick in the mind about Paul Kirk on the touchline? Uh, well, Paul's such, Paul's such a quiet, reserved guy that really you, just, <laughs> you, you, you rarely noticed him. No, but Paul's a super guy, and and I mean, if everybody could match Paul's enthusiasm for the job, um, you know, they'd all be they'd all probably be improved as coaches. But I, I guess my memory of Paul would have been his time at Lisburn Distillery, where he where he took Lisburn Distillery to heights that uh, they had never been at. For, for, for decades probably and of course sadly um, uh, the club the club is now uh, playing in pre- Premier Intermediate League um, thankfully the club still exists which is the important thing but you know I can remember going to Ballyskay and Paul was was really uh, jack of all trades there wasn't he I mean he, he was he was cutting the grass he was marking the pitch he was doing work inside to make the place more attractive he was bringing um, a group of young players or a group of players together and moulding them into a successful team, um, and uh, you know he, he gave he gave Distillery uh, a lot of success and a real football guy and somebody that you know you could sit and and have a long conversation with and and uh, respect. Um, and he would have his own views, and I think he would also be be happy to listen to to my view as a referee and we certainly would never have fallen out over over anything when did you decide that it was time to hang the whistle up as so to speak yeah that decision um there were there were actually several reasons um that all pointed towards me stopping when i did stop uh one of one of the Big ones probably was in, in, in my 32 years as a referee, I'd never had to cry off a game because of, of injury. So I'd gone for that length of time without uh, without having a, any injury whatsoever that, that that stopped me refereeing a football match. So I had this in the back of my mind because I knew that if I did t- even a small injury um, that, that prevented me from, from refereeing, then that little sort of record, as I called it, would be broken. And I don't think I'd have ever forgiven myself if that had happened. Mm-hmm. Um, plus, let's be honest, the, the birthdays were clicking by. Um, fitness levels probably at that stage were were starting to drop. Um, and then you had the, the vast experience behind you to to sort of um, compensate for that, if you like. You could, you know, re- read the game, anticipate things, just use your, your head a little bit more. Uh, I knew there was an opportunity coming up um, for the UEFA observer role, perhaps a year or so after I did stop. So I knew I needed to get experience uh, as a referee observer domestically um, before that opportunity would arise. And, um, you know, when you added everything together, it, it made perfect sense to stop because I also during my career could see people who were hanging on for another another year. Uh, and then things started to go badly wrong, and you know the standards that you'd set yourself over many years would start to drop. Uh, mistakes would creep into performances. Your reputation would start to suffer. So much, much better to get out when you're still, you know, fairly close to the top level. So when I added all those things up, Tim, the decision became um, not an easy decision because you were stopping something that had been your life. Uh, for 32 years, but I knew there was another chapter or two ahead with other things, and still, still being involved uh, as much as uh, as much as possible in the game. At what age were you when you retired as a referee? Uh, 48. <laughs> Did you hand out many red cards during your career, Alan? <laughs> uh, well, I certainly handed out a few. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, the, these things happen. Uh, it's it's 
sometimes it, it, it can't be avoided. I think when I do look back on my own career, uh, there were less, certainly a lot less yellow cards and a lot less red cards than than uh, than we see now in the modern game. But then the game has changed and um, uh, over the years, and uh, a lot of a lot of the the cards now, you know, are mandatory cautions for for uh, for offences. And perhaps back in my time, um, you know, it was a more physical game, um, uh, but accepted by the players now tackling is really something that doesn't happen um as, as much as it used to uh so it has it has changed a lot and obviously the game has got has got faster at top level as well uh, but but red cards and yellow cards are not something that um you know i would have really kept a a strict note off it, it it just happens in a game and and you give your decision and deal with it it's not something that it would be uh keeping notes off so is there none that stick in your mind do you remember the day you had to hand out that first red card and what it was for i suppose the the only one well there's one that would stick in my mind was probably the first red card that i'd had in in senior football which which is probably um you know something new, and it's it's uh, it's a it's a decision that you don't like to have to make, but uh, it had to be made on the day, and and the player was sent off, and okay, uh, it's it's I suppose another step in your experience as a top referee. It's 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 something that needed done, and I suppose looking back, uh, maybe having the courage to do it is not the right way to explain it, but. At the same time, it's it's still a it's still a small step in your career, which every referee is going to face. During your time refereeing, obviously there's been a lot of rule changes. What was one of your favourite rules that changed, or should I say, laws of the game? Um, yeah, it's a very good question. Um, you know, and if if anybody's watching footage of games way way back, they will they will notice a big difference. I suppose the offside law has been tinkered with quite a lot. Um, you know, way back I can remember the attacking player. If there was any doubt, should have the advantage. Um, but now technology has crept in, and that decision has become black and white with with VAR, etc. Um, goalkeeper holding on to the ball for more than six seconds came in at one point, but um, again, it's it's a law that you rarely see applied because, you know, he really, goalkeeper really needs to be delaying the restart of play before action will be taken. Um, so uh, I guess if I, if I thought about the changes in laws, you know, in my own view, every change in the laws of the game should benefit the game. Um, and again, another element of it, it should make, should make refereeing, should make refereeing easier. Mm-hmm. You know, even, Something has just come to my mind now. You know, player taking his shirt off to celebrate a goal. You know, can we stop that emotion? The answer is probably no. Is there anything wrong with it? Probably not, but it was brought in because there were political slogans maybe written on a shirt underneath or a player got too excited waving his shirt around and incited part, parts of the crowd or there was a risk of crowd um, injury with in the old days supporters surging forward maybe with with uh, stadiums where there were no seats and things like that but I'm going back a long way and the game has changed and uh, you know it's probably only people of my generation that would remember those types of moments. You're now FIFA and UEFA referee instructor. Talk us through about the second part of your career. Yeah well I suppose you could call it that that's that's exactly right so um, yeah I'm used uh <clears throat> Pre-COVID, I was extremely busy with with seminars and and different projects in different countries, and then that sort of came to a halt. So I think we all became familiar with Zoom calls and Microsoft Team calls during that year and a half, perhaps stretching on to two years now, um, where a lot of the referee education and instruction was done um, uh, virtually, uh, which was a new experience. Um, but now, thankfully, in the last couple of months, things have started to return to some normality. So I'm hoping again then to be to be busy uh, 
busy travelling, con- conducting seminars for FIFA and UEFA and some small uh, educational programmes or other projects that, that I've got involved in. It must have been quite interesting travelling around different countries and, and working alongside different organisations and people. You've held roles in Cyprus, Latvia, Greece and Russia. Yeah, yeah, they, they came... They they more or less came again opportunities that um, as I guess it's certainly the Cyprus one the first one came <clears throat> a little bit out of the blue so really the background behind that one was I'd spent eight years as referee development officer with the RHFA when I left when I left the bank uh, managed to get early retirement at fifty and joined the IFA as as the first ever referee development officer which was. Obviously, for me, a, a really, really exciting time because you were working full time on football, and you were, you know, w- working in a in refereeing, which had been your passion for so long, and being the first guy to walk into an empty desk and a clean sheet of paper and start to to try and develop refereeing in Northern Ireland was a was a huge um, was a huge challenge and also a huge honour and a, and a real pleasure. And you know, I learned so much in those. Eight years that um, that sort of uh, led me on then to working in other countries and using that experience and success that we had, um, and in a lot of elements in, in refereeing in Northern Ireland at that time, uh, to use that experience in 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 uh, places like Cyprus, who needed an independent person there to to sort of run refereeing, and the reason that many outside experts go to countries abroad is simply to bring uh, independence there because it's very very difficult for the local people to run their own to run their own shows anyone listening to this podcast that is inspired and in getting involved in refereeing what way should they go about doing that well the first the first step is obviously to apply to to the referee department at the irish football association so if there is anybody listening who's even uh, contemplating or thinking about becoming a referee then i would Obviously, encourage them to 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 lift the phone or send an email in. Uh, the contact details would be on the website, um, and then the the referee department will will come back to them with with information about a beginner's course. Uh, and hopefully, there is you, you know a program of courses being organised probably as we as we speak because as we said at the top of the show, there is a there is a shortage which needs to be addressed uh, as quickly as possible. And and this will take time, of course, because you know the training to be a referee can take can take a couple of months, which it, with a with a series of um, of weekly classes, uh, or or perhaps a couple of days at the weekend. Um, but you know, refereeing can give you so much. That, you know, for a young person listening to the podcast, um, perhaps maybe in a similar situation that I was, enjoys football, but knows that. They're not going to be a top player. The opportunity is there to become become a top referee and share the same fields of play as the top players do. Um, and it does take time. It doesn't happen overnight. So it is a it is a program or a something that will take will take several years, but certainly worth the wait. What advice would you give to a young or new referee? Um, my advice would be first of all um, enjoy yourself because. It's not something that you want to start uh, and not enjoy. Um, it's going to improve your fitness levels because you need to train to be a referee. You're physically active on on match days. It'll yeah. teach you a lot about managing people, um, social skills, uh, as I would call it, making decisions. Um, you know, using your personality, using your character, um, and be, being able to control. Uh, 22 people for 90 odd minutes is is something that um, can teach you a lot, uh, which will help you in other aspects of your life. So for somebody young um, who's perhaps still at school or perhaps university or starting their new job, uh, you know, they're at a stage in life where refereeing can teach them a lot and help them a lot and give them a lot of confidence. If you could select a new rule change now, what would it be? Well, again, again, interesting question, Tim. But I do, I actually do have a little um, possible change in my mind, which which I actually see happening quite quite a bit. And it's something, it's something very very simple, really. 
uh, along the lines of, you know, a player a player taking a throw in. Um, the current laws of the game say the throw in must be taken from the position where the ball left the field of play. So quite often, referee and the player are are trying to to guide each other where the throw in is being taken. But I've just got this little idea in the back of my mind that if the defending team was taking a throw in in their own half of the field of play, they can take it from anywhere as long as it's not past the point where the ball left the field of play. So that would allow throw-ins to be taken much quicker by the defending team Um, because quite often we see the ball going a long way from where uh, it left the field. And I'm even thinking in a public park you know, how often does a player have to go back chase after the ball, lift it and come back to the position where it left? And is there any real reason why he can't throw it in immediately from somewhere close by where he's managed to gather the ball? And and the benefits of that would be speed up the game, speed up the restart, save some time. And if he gets the ball back into play quickly, then the play can continue much faster. So that's a simple way of trying to explain it. Um, yeah, uh, if it makes sense, I like that. I mean, also, I like the idea of changing the rules surrounding throw ins and corners. Obviously, it should be an advantage as it's your ball, but yet you play with one man down on the pitch. I always thought it would be interesting if you could dribble in with the ball. Yeah, it's been talked about about kicking the ball in instead of throwing it. So, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not sure, but. You, you guys, are, you guys as coaches, always find ways around these things. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know, from my side, what would be interesting would be sitting down with somebody like Paul Kirk, who you've mentioned, or somebody that's, uh, you know, heavily involved in coaching, and and you know, weighing up the pros and cons of this, because I'm sure there would be somebody would come up with reasons, uh, reasons against this change. But you know, one of the difficulties in the modern game is is um, is actual playing time. Because although the match night lasts ninety minutes plus, the, the ball is in play for something for something like 50, 50 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and if we can find ways of adding a minute or two on um, to every game, then that has to be that has to be a, a good reason for trying to change things. The other thing I'd like to talk about is players, coaches, spectators, parents, behaviour in the touchline, especially at junior level. What way do you think is best to address this, to offer more respect and protection to referees? Well, I know in my time with the RHFA and, and speaking with the, the coaches and, and all the, the, the tremendous work that was being done with um, the kids' football on Saturday mornings and trying to introduce respect programmes and, and things like that, that there was a lot of success of, of, uh, of reducing all of that because... You know, a lot of these games were also being refereed by young referees who were starting off. And the last thing we needed was for somebody on the touchline, be it a coach, manager, parent, um, whatever, uh, to, to, to put the referee off, never mind the player off. And I think there was also a, a desire back then, of just let the kids play, don't interfere. Um, and I think they set up special little zones for parents, which were, you know, back off the field of play a little bit and they had their own space and there was, you know, codes of conduct and that type of thing introduced. So I guess that made a that made a significant difference. But, you know, the biggest issue at junior football is is um, is is that the issues that arise from the touchline towards, uh, you know, towards referees. And it's something that is extremely difficult to stamp out. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is, but it is a problem. There's no question of it. There's been a concept that has been used recently in our small city games and RHFA program, and that's called Silent Saturday. So this is whereby the only the kids' voices you're allowed to hear. Parents and coaches are not allowed to shout on unless it's simply you know well played and along those lines. We need to remember young referees are also learning the game and will make mistakes just like players. They need to be protected. Yeah, exactly, and um, you know we're we're into child protection issues now as well, and we're into racism, and we're into you know the social media aspect as well, which which are all things that I didn't have to really put up with um, dur- during my spell. So 
you know, there's a tax if that's the right word being addressed, not not just the referees. I mean, it's not just a referee issue. It's it's players, coaches, et cetera, et cetera, have to put up with this um the, the modern uh, the modern way, if you like. And you, you know, we all can see the issues that social media is causing. Um I guess ninety nine point nine percent of it is perfectly fine and acceptable, but it's this it's this very, very small minority of people that uh, just are, are simply abusing people for, for totally the wrong reasons. And, you know, we all know what the problem is. And I think this morning, only this morning I was listening to this guy sports discussing it and uh, nobody nobody seems to be able to find a solution to it. And I can understand that because it's such a difficult issue. Yeah, yeah yes. It's, I mean, it's something everyone needs to come back together and understand without a referee there is no game yeah yeah and unfortunately that is the case at the moment and you know i can well remember again i keep going back uh obviously over the years and there were many many junior matches that that never had referees at, at obviously at the lower levels of the game and then step by step we managed to get every game in the country covered with a referee so that was um, that was that was a very positive move, um, but you know, can can under six, under seven, under eight kids games be played without a referee? Of course they can, because the kids just get on with it and enjoy themselves. And um, you know, at some point, then a, a referee becomes more more necessary. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and and the other point I would make about refereeing and kids football and youth football is, you know, that's also where referees, young referees, start to learn, start to learn their trade. So they need to be in a safe environment uh, because we can lose them very, very quickly, and uh, that's that's not what we need to happen. Yeah, I mean that's 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 so true. I think over the years, I haven't been too bad towards referees. <laughs> Although two weeks ago, I shouted on a referee on. Did you? Right. I shouted, ref, well played. That was a great advantage you played. Well done. That's great refereeing. <laughs> Good for you. Good for I, you. I think I think he was quite shocked actually getting the compliment. <laughs> <laughs> keep it up. Keep it up, Tim. Keep it up. <laughs> now I've saved this to the end as this is huge. You were awarded the MBE in the Queen's Birthday Honours List in May 2020. Congratulations, sir. Th- thank you so much, and. It- <laughs> it still seems it's a real moment and it still seems unreal and you know it's when people like you just mention it again there it, it um it's just another reminder so uh yeah i mean it's it's um you hear everybody talking about it's a real honor and and it's only when you sort of receive it yourself that you appreciate just just how special this is and you know for somebody out there who has decided that they think I deserve an honour like this and make the application and find, as I understand it, a few people to support the application, then that makes it that makes it truly special. And the other element from my side is that, you know, I, I see it really as um, as a reward for the family mm-hmm. um, because they have stood by me over the years when I was obviously much younger and travelling abroad and leaving my wife Elaine and kids behind for three or four days or sometimes weeks on an end as it was in in tournaments, um, you know, without that support uh, and the support of Northern Bank, who I was employed by for, you know, all those times as well and able to get away, you know. So uh, there's so much, so much that went on um, uh, during my career and then to, to sort of, sit back just and reminisce and think well okay i'm now an mbe is 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 ah, it, it's very very difficult to find the to find the right words to describe it so um yeah yeah amazing i mean absolutely amazing you touched on it earlier you're currently writing your memoirs when do you hope to complete this project and how can people go about getting a copy of it yeah well what i'm desperately trying to do is get is get a couple of of chapters done and uh, to be honest it's it's uh, it's come to a halt in the last in the last weeks just because other things have, have been so busy and um uh, but I, i'm genuinely trying to get it finished 
Tim as soon as possible within the next. Uh, my my target would be the Christmas market this year, but then I said that last year, and and another job came in and took away all the free time that I had. So, mm-hmm. uh, I do need to set myself that target to get it done. So, um, what what I'm missing, I think, is I said earlier, just the opportunity to sit down with so many ex-players and people involved in the local game and and talk through that. So, COVID has put paid to that, unfortunately. Um, but I do need to get it done, and then, uh, you know, having got the MBA, the investiture for that's coming up in November, so that's another special moment which I think should be included. So, uh, I'm not sure whether that will delay it or not. Um, but yeah, listen, it's work in progress. Um, both people that have promised to buy it said they're prepared to wait, so, <laughs> so 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 I'm happy with that. So but listen, it's work in progress and it'll be there and it's a one off and I'm not pretending to be a to be a professional author. It's just genuine memories and genuine reflections and experiences on on what's coming up to be uh, sort of fifty years as a referee. So um I hope it's worth the wait. You know what, one thing to think about, I have a few coaching books out, and my publisher said to me, do you realise, Tim, that this book will outlive you? It will always be here. Exactly, yeah. That's, well, that's, yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's very true, Tim, and it's something I've never heard, but yeah, wow, you're right. It's mm-hmm. something that's always going to be there. <laughs> we got quite deep there, didn't we, huh? It's at this stage of the podcast we have a weekly feature whereby I ask my guests to pick their five-a-side dream team based on their nationality and players they have watched in their lifetime. Okay, okay. So you want a you want an Irish League dream team from players that played when I refereed? Yeah. You know what? I think that would be brilliant. Okay, okay. Well, um. Hopefully this doesn't offend anybody, but guys, remember, there's only five players I can pick. Um, <laughs> so I think from a goalkeeper point of view, it would have to be George Dunlop, yeah. Um, yeah. Who, who played, obviously, uh, lifetime at Linfield International international team on the fringe of it. So George would have been around um, with me. Uh, in front of him, a really nice guy, Noel Bailey. Uh, legend at Linfield as well. Um, you know, never ever give a referee any problems whatsoever. Uh, one club man, um, and uh, you know, give us give us all in every match. Uh, and then three guys. Well, Jim Cleary was always midfield. Um, you know, if you're trying to pick a five-a-side team, I think you want players that can play with the ball, distribute the ball see the pass, and Jim was certainly one of those. Uh, funny, a guy I bumped into on Saturday at Ballymena, Felix Healy. Um, again, another legend, Coleraine and Derry City, et cetera, et cetera, and what a skillful player. And if you ever wanted a guy who could score goals for fun, then up front, Martin McGackey. So I think that team would be virtually unbeatable, Tim. Virtually unbeatable. <laughs> uh, but it's a generation of players that played when I when I refereed in the Irish League. So uh, people of a certain age will will recognise them immediately. The younger guys, of course, won't. But I think I don't think the current Irish League could find a team that would beat those five. Excellent. That's that's a great shout. Jim Cleary's boys played for us at the Story. Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, there we are. Now, we also ask you to select your worldwide five-a-side dream team. Okay. Um, and again, players that I've shared a pitch with uh, or feel to play with, probably. Um, I'm going to put Pat Jennings in goals because mm-hmm. um, I had the honour of refereeing Pat's testimonial match and such a gentleman and such an ambassador uh, for Northern Ireland and obviously a world-class goalkeeper um, beyond any beyond any doubts, although he did concede three that day when Brazil beat us 3-0, but <laughs> I'm, not so sure, I'm not so sure he could have done much about about that, especially Josie Moore's goal, which went past him like an absolute rocket. Um, so, let me see. I'm going to put Ruud Hulot in. Um, you mentioned red cards earlier, so Ruud and I have got a connection between a red card and me and him, but still a world-class player, obviously. 
Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, one one uh, match of nine, Hoven when he played there. So, uh, but I'm not holding that against him. So he's 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 still in my team. He's going to hold he's it against you. <laughs> <laughs> possibly, yeah, possibly. Um, you know, Maradona's got to be in there. Let's be honest. Uh, tragically died far too young, of course, as we all know. But uh, world class player, and and you know. When you say you've shared the same field of play with with somebody like that, then uh, you know you've got to be in. Klinsman we mentioned earlier in in the World Cup finals, so strong attacking player. Um, just to keep uh, just to keep uh, Noel Bailey and Georgeton Lott busy at the back, um, <laughs> and uh, you know Cantona Cantona is another one that I would put in as well. Uh, played for France when I refereed a game. Um, France against Israel a long time ago in Paris. So, oh, wow. if if we can bring those two teams together, George and Belfast, um, for a for a for a challenge match, I think, I think I would come out of retirement and referee at the really <laughs> <laughs> What was Cantona like to referee? No, uh, very quiet from memory. I mean, I don't. He, he never came to my attention for any for any bizarre reason. And and obviously, when I refereed him back then, he hadn't got the the sort of reputation he had, well, well, maybe that's the wrong way to put it. But he was a young player coming, coming through, uh, coming through France then. So year by year, uh, obviously signing for United and things like that. So yeah, but you know, when you look back, and again, you know, just referring back to writing the book, these these memories come, and uh, I've quite a lot of records of games that I've refereed and uh, team sheets of players. And when you look back and you see these guys' names. Uh, you know, it's it's very very satisfying. That's amazing. <laughs> what an incredible journey! Starting back in 1972 and seeing how your career has taken you from junior football to Irish league, to back to back World Cup finals, and being awarded an MBE. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, sometimes you feel like it's a dream and it hasn't actually happened, and you need to pinch yourself. But yeah, it's. Uh, it's um, very, very satisfying, that's for sure. The final question, we always ask our guests to recommend a future individual to come on the TW Sports Group podcast to speak to us. Who would you recommend? Well, it's, a, it's an interesting question. And um, it, what a, the, the name that comes to mind, um, and it probably comes to mind again because I had a quick chat with him on Saturday uh, at a match that he was watching. He wasn't, he wasn't working on it, but... I guess Tiernan Lynch, the current manager of Larne, has got a story to tell mm-hmm. um, because, you know, what Larne have done in the past two or three years uh, is just truly, truly remarkable. Um, and even in the short conversation that I had with Tiernan, you could see his enthusiasm and, you know, pride at being able to be manager of a club playing in Europe, for example, and the preparation that that entailed. Um for a club that I used to go to as a referee with with a hundred people watching in the old B division, and then they got promoted to senior football, and the crowds got bigger, um, and a stadium that's being reconstructed, and you know a real legacy has been left um, for for the club and and the crowds that they're now attracting through through the 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 input of Kenny Bruce and the rest of the team. So I, I guess Kiernan would have a story to tell. Um, and a story that's probably not finished yet because you know it's still everything is still progressing in a in a forward direction for Lauren. So that's a great shout. You know what? I've actually met Tiernan on a couple of occasions. He and Kenny, they're they're doing great things at Lauren. They are, and and you know the the beauty of all these things that are happening. It you know it's a legacy that's going to be left, and perhaps you know what you said about your books, and they're going to outlive you. I mean, all this work is going to outlive. Uh, outlive the the current people there. It's, it's it's something that's going to be there on a permanent basis, which is which is fantastic. Yeah, yeah, a great legacy. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for your time, Alan. A pleasure, Tim. Thank you for the invitation and and good luck. And uh, we'll keep in touch. Yeah, for sure. We'll definitely look forward to meeting up, perhaps at a future toddler mini soccer center with your grandchildren. Yeah, anytime. You know where I am. Thank you so much, my friend. Have a great day. And you, Tim. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Bye. 
Thanks to Anson and thank you to everyone for listening. Please remember to subscribe to our weekly podcast and share with your friends. I mean, it's crazy. That's the end of season one, 20 episodes, and I hope you've enjoyed the journey. It's been fabulous reaching out, and thanks so much to all our guests for sharing their journey. And I'm sure we've all learned so much from listening to each podcast, because I know I have, and I hope you've enjoyed it. But don't worry, we'll be back for season two. We're just going to have a little break now. Probably won't be too much of a break because I'm already getting people lined up for season two and the guests are just as exciting as the ones that we've had during season one. But listen, we want to hear from you. I mean, it's been brilliant getting some emails and some messages and social media. Remember, everything is just simply at TW Sports Group. You'll find us on Insta, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Patreon, the whole heap do reach out because I love to hear from everyone and it's been great getting messages as far away as Australia of listeners to the podcast. So here's the usual bit that I always say but here come on somebody listen and go one step further and become a patron. So please if you can do give us a review would be great. I think you might need to go onto Apple Podcast to write a written review and make sure you give us a five star rating. You can get in touch for a shout out by emailing tim at twsports.org just put podcast in the subject box or legend if you'd like to support the podcast and receive my weekly video training sessions and much more become a patron at patreon.com forward slash twsportsgroup listen there's going to be some exciting stuff coming on next year as we make a few visits to pro clubs and that will bring that especially exclusive footage to our patrons so you can support us from as little as three pound per month absolutely nothing what a steal and you gain access to the library of training sessions on our patreon channel but thanks for listening i'm tim waring and we'll be back not next week but hopefully in a few weeks time certainly by december with a brand new season and a brand new episode on the tw sports group podcast thanks so much for your support please keep in touch and we will keep in touch with you and be back very very soon speak then and take care